As I was growing up, the, the first step of becoming a Christian was to say the sinner's prayer, and the second was to take a spiritual gift test. And you needed to take that spiritual gift test so that you would know how God had gifted you so that you would then know how to serve the church and what ministry to serve in. So in Corinth, we know this, there were divisions in the church. And we now are going to find this out, that they had asked Paul about spiritual gifts. What was most likely happening, and this becomes clear as we get into the next few chapters, what was most likely happening is that the Corinthians were elevating one spiritual gift over another. That gift was probably the gift of tongues, and it was leaving some in the church to feel like they weren't even a part of the body, at least feeling like they maybe weren't as important or as spiritual. There's other issues, too, that Paul is going to address in chapters 12, 13, and 14. But here is Paul's main point regarding the Holy Spirit and the way that he empowers God's people. The Holy Spirit unites us as Christians and he gifts us to serve one another so that the church would be built up. And that is a, a truth that is like a banner over these Next three chapters, which form a section in Paul's writing, we will keep that in mind, that the Holy Spirit, He unites us and He gifts us to serve one another so that the church would be built up. If you've read these chapters before, you know that they are full chapters. There is so much to get to in these Chapters, And we'll get to most of it in the new year, including a sub-topical series, just looking at the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, because His work and His ministry is central in these chapters. And I think what you'll also see, just getting introduced today, but that is that Paul has... A, a view of spiritual gifts that is today culturally uncommon. So if you didn't grow up in church, you're probably not going to have some of the, I'll call it baggage, that the rest of us do. And many of us have grown up in churches and, and maybe even under teaching that was unclear, maybe even wrong, regarding spiritual gifts and so we'll see as we read, beginning today, that Paul has a, a different perspective. And of course, it's the biblical perspective. It's the right perspective because Paul is writing inspired by the Holy Spirit who gives spiritual gifts. So we have a lot to learn. In our text today, after saying in verse 3, Verse 3 is perhaps the most important thing that Paul could say about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And we'll read that. And after he says that most important thing about the ministry of the Holy Spirit, he will combat division by teaching the Corinthians where spiritual gifts are from. He'll answer that question today. And what spiritual gifts are for. So he'll answer those two questions. Where do these spiritual gifts come from? And what are these spiritual gifts for? And as usual, we will need God's help to understand his word, to apply his word. Please bow your heads with me. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your word. And thank you for giving us your Holy Spirit so that we can understand your word. So... Open our minds to your truth, fill our hearts with love for you, and press our wills to obey you. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. If you are using one of our church Bibles, you'll find today's text again on page 901. 
verse 1, you'll see, of chapter 12 begins with the two words, now concerning. And those two words have showed up three times in chapter 7, verse 1, chapter 7, verse 25, and chapter 8, verse 1. It signals that Paul is changing gears. You really have to track with Paul in this letter. He, he moves very freely. And so when you see this now concerning, he's changing gears to respond to a letter or letters the Corinthians had written him. We don't have those letters, so we can only speculate on their exact content. But as we read Paul's letter back to them, as we read Paul's answers, it becomes obvious, at least generally speaking, what the Corinthians were asking about. Verse 1, now concerning spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts is possibly or probably what the Corinthians had asked about. I only say possibly because the word gifts, as you see it there in verse 1, that word is not actually in the original language. What this literally says is now concerning spirituals. It could either mean spiritual people. That is how the word was used back in chapter 2. Verse 13 and 15, this word spiritual was referring to spiritual people, or it could mean spiritual gifts. That is how this word will be used at the very end of this teaching in chapter 14, verse 1. I think it's probably a bit of both. I think he's being intentionally ambiguous here. At the very least, we know the Corinthians wrote Paul with questions about spiritual matters. They had questions about supernatural matters. He goes on. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, brothers is a term of endearment, which probably means rebuke is coming. Brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. Paul is saying the Corinthians lacked knowledge. He doesn't want them uninformed. They lacked knowledge when it came to spiritual matters. They needed more information. And the reason that they lacked knowledge, Paul gives in the next verse, verse 2. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. That is a humbling thing. For Paul to say, not long ago, all of these Corinthians, they were unbelievers. Every single one of them in this church, not long ago, they were unbelievers. And many of them, they were worshiping mute idols. That means powerless idols, dumb idols. Many of them were just a while ago worshiping mute idols in pagan temples. Imagine that. That is the history of this church. Not one of these people grew up in church. Not one. None of them had been catechized. All of them had zero Christian heritage. Each of them was a first-generation, born-again believer, and so they had a lot to learn. They also had how many theology books that they could refer to? Zero. If Amazon existed in the first century, they would go to Amazon and they would punch in theology. Nothing would turn up. No commentaries, no systematic theology, no biblical theology, no historical theology, nothing. At best, they only had six books of the 27 that you find in your New Testament. So it's understandable. They needed information. They had a lot to learn. And yet, even though they were new Christians, God was clearly pouring out His Holy Spirit in spectacular ways among them. I mean, spectacular. 
God's Spirit was being poured out in both miraculous and ordinary ways and miraculous and extraordinary ways. Everything the Holy Spirit does is miraculous. But some of His work is ordinary, and by ordinary I mean common. There's work that the Holy Spirit does in every single Christian, and it's invariable. And then there is extraordinary work that the Holy Spirit does in some Christians and at different times. Well, both of that, all of that was happening in Corinth. It's the work He does in and through every Christian. The Holy Spirit has brought every one of us to Christ. He has united every one of us to Christ. He is growing every single one of you Christians in Christ. And He has sealed you. He has guaranteed your salvation in Christ. That's work that the Holy Spirit has done in every single one of us if you are a Christian. But sometimes the Holy Spirit does extraordinary work in and through Christians. And His extraordinary work alongside His ordinary work was also in full swing in the church at Corinth. In fact, historically, we know that spooky and strange things were happening amongst Paul's readers. Both in Christian churches and in pagan temples, there was a lot of spiritual phenomena, we could call it, taking place. Extraordinary, supernatural, inexplicable experiences, which the Bible labels as signs and wonders. Historical and biblical evidence seems to convey that during this time, when the apostles were still alive and Scripture was still being written, signs and wonders, they were at an all-time high. Paul is writing, and the Corinthians are living in the middle of the apostolic age, a transitional period during the overlapping of the Old and the New Covenant, which is arguably the most unique epoch in human history. And so many strange things took place during this time that are not normative, that are not paradigmatic, that we might not or should not expect even to be repeated. Let me give you some examples. Some conversions to Christianity were dramatized by wind and fire. The regions were rife with obvious demonic activity and human possession. Men and even their garments were endowed with miraculous healing power. Some Christians were immune to snake venom and chemical poison. And men, and we know this was happening in Corinth, and men were proclaiming the mighty acts of God in languages they had never learned. So you can imagine, the Corinthians were tempted to pride and boasting. New Christians, no Christian heritage, not a lot of information. They hadn't learned much, and yet the Holy Spirit was being poured out in dramatic ways among them. It was leading to some pride and boasting. Like a bunch of 20-year-old kids drafted into the NFL, they're having a difficult time staying humble. It was spectacular what was happening to them. And for many, it was leading to pride and arrogance. This spirit empowerment combined with little knowledge was leading to division in the church. There were other issues, and we'll get to them as Paul gets to them. But he begins in our text today with the division. The division that was taking place. So let's begin with verse 3. In verse 3, think of this as an opening statement in regards to the ministry of the Holy Spirit. 
This is, you could say, the most important ministry of the Holy Spirit. I would say that. It's also an underrated ministry of the Holy Spirit. But listen to Paul's opening statement to these entire three chapters. Verse 3, Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now that answers a, a very important question for the Corinthians. It answers a very important question for us today. When we see spiritual phenomena, when we read about or hear about spiritual phenomena, supernatural, inexplicable experiences, even taking place in churches, maybe this church, maybe another church, how do we discern between good and evil? When we see or hear about something supernatural taking place in a church, whether it's our church or another church or the Corinthian church, how do we discern whether or not it is from above or from below? Whether it is good or evil? How do we discern whether or not it is actually the work of the Holy Spirit? Just the fact that it is supernatural even doesn't answer that question. It could be signs and wonders from God. Hebrews chapter 2 verses 3 and 4 says this. How should we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? This gospel, this salvation was declared at first by the Lord Jesus. And then it was attested to us by those who heard. That was the apostles. So Jesus proclaims the gospel. Then the apostles were proclaiming the gospel. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles. And by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. The purpose of these signs and wonders, it has always been to validate the authority and the message of people sent from God. From Moses to Jesus to the Apostle Paul. So if we see signs and wonders, if we see something supernatural, if those in Corinth did, it could be validating the authority and message of people sent from God. 2 Corinthians 2.12 The signs of a true apostle. There it is. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. Or, it could be signs and wonders not from God. It could be supernatural activity, supernatural experiences, not from God. Christians, not everything supernatural is from above. Some is from below. But we can't lack discernment. Because something is seemingly powerful, because something is seemingly good, because something has good, as far as we can tell, effects that is not reason enough to discern whether it's from above or whether it's from below. Listen to 2 Thessalonians 2, 8 and 9. And then, this is in the future, the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth. That is a great verse, by the way. The Lord Jesus will kill him with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. But here's the verse that relates to what we're studying. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders. Same phrase. Signs and wonders, but false. I suspect some of the Corinthian converts who had seen similar supernatural activity in their pagan temples, they were very concerned with the issue of discernment. 
Maybe that's what they wrote Paul about. We know historically that in the pagan places of worship that were devoted to various mystery religions at the time, there were accounts of ecstatic speech taking place. Where worshipers in these pagan temples would be overcome by emotion and they would uncontrollably rattle off words and phrases that were indiscernible. So we must be discerning. John talked about the same thing in 1 John 4.1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit. But test the spirits. That's what Paul's helping us do in verse 3. But test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. And here's the test Paul gives. Therefore, verse 3, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. What do they say? That's the question, isn't it? Not what do they do, but what do they say? If you see someone do or claim something miraculous, the next question you should ask is, what are they saying? What is coming out of their mouth? What is the content? What is their message? Even more specifically, verse 3, what do they say about Jesus? What does Benny Hinn say? What does Bill Johnson say? What does the prosperity gospel say about Jesus? It demotes him. What do so-called faith healers say about Jesus? This is the point that Paul is getting to. This is how we discern. Paul says first, no one speaking in the Spirit of God. Okay, they do not have the Spirit of God. No one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is cursed. It means anathema. It means rejected by God. No one, if they have the Spirit of God, ever says a rejecting word of Jesus Christ. I don't know if men were actually saying this in the church in Corinth. We know that there was ecstatic speech taking place, and so it's possible that someone was shouting out, Jesus is accursed. I find that unlikely. I think that Paul's point is that in order to discern the source of something, you must discern the message, the content. You must evaluate the confession. And if someone possesses the Holy Spirit, the theme of their message will never reject Jesus. It will never supplant Jesus. Rather, it will always exalt Jesus. And so Paul says, no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Of course, someone can say Jesus is Lord insincerely. That's not what Paul means. He doesn't mean that no one can mouth those three words, Jesus is Lord. That's not what he's talking about. Only by the Holy Spirit can someone sincerely confess Jesus as Lord. This is what Leon Morris is talking about when he writes in his commentary, the Lordship of Christ is not a human discovery. It is a discovery that is made and can be made only when the Spirit is at work in the heart. A Christian has been brought to Jesus by the Holy Spirit. A Christian has had their heart changed by the Holy Spirit, their desires and affections changed by the Holy Spirit. A Christian has had their mind changed, their thinking changed by the Holy Spirit. A Christian will grow and mature through the influence and work of the Holy Spirit. A Christian 
will never be separated from God again because he has been given the Holy Spirit, indwelt by the Holy Spirit as a sign and a seal that God himself will keep his promises. And so the result of all that Holy Spirit work in a Christian is that a Christian says Jesus is Lord. A Christian is Christ-centered. Everything, home and work and play and sports and hobbies and church, everything is centered on and comes back to Jesus. So let me ask you a very personal question. Is Jesus the Lord of your life? You can say Jesus is Lord. You've been given the natural ability to say that. But do you have the spiritual ability to say Jesus is Lord? Are they just words? Do you mean the songs that we sing? Some of these songs we sing, including some that we sung this morning, have a lot of very personal pronouns in them. My God and my Redeemer. My hope. My salvation. There's other songs that don't have those personal pronouns. They're great songs that are just extolling God and great is thy faithfulness. But some of you, something in you, when you sing some of these songs, feels off. Maybe you feel hypocritical when you're singing. Maybe it even feels awkward. Because Jesus, in your heart, you know, he's not Lord. You feel duplicitous when you sing the songs, maybe. Because it's not true for you. You may give the Sunday school answer. But is there love for Jesus in your heart? Not perfect love. It's not what I'm saying. Not perfect maturity. That's not what I'm saying. But is there love for Jesus? If Jesus is not Lord, he should be. He should be. He is worthy of lordship. He is worthy of your ultimate submission and all your love and all of your worship. So Paul gets this very important point out of the way. It is his opening statement regarding the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The primary evidence of the Holy Spirit's presence and power is found in what people believe and in what people confess. And there is not a more important ministry of the Holy Spirit than that ministry where He changes the hearts of people and makes them Christians with new desires and new beliefs and a new and true confession. And I'm saying it's the most important because in John chapter 3, verse 3, Jesus told Nicodemus that you can't see, you can't get into the kingdom of God unless you have been born of the Holy Spirit. So I don't think there's anything more important than the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. There's more of that to come in these chapters. So in the following verses now, Paul speaks directly to the problem of division. That's where he's going here. The Corinthians, they were boasting over gifts and they were misusing their gifts. Same thing happens today. It was joked about in the article that I read at the beginning of the sermon. We have ideas of what kinds of spiritual gifts are most important. We have desires of gifts that we would like. I wish the Holy Spirit gifted me this way, or I wish the Holy Spirit gifted me this way. There may have been a time when you even took tests, you didn't like the results. And so you've got a different test. You didn't like the results, you got a different test. That's a problem. 
It's a wrong approach and a misunderstanding of what spiritual gifting even is. So Paul addresses that in the verses to come. The first question, where do these gifts come from? In verses 4 through 6, Paul makes clear the source of all gifts. They are from God. They are from God, so no man can boast. That is what Paul is saying. Verse 4. Now there are varieties of gifts. Now remember verse 3. Christians, same confession. Jesus is Lord. But there's varieties of gifts. But the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service. But the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities. But it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. God is behind all truly spiritual gifts. God is behind all service or ministry based on the way the Holy Spirit is enabling you and gifting you. You might end up serving in different ways and God is behind the different activities you might find yourself in. The Spirit enables you in ways and gifts you in ways which gets you serving in ways and then you end up in a variety of different circumstances or activities. And it is God, verses 4 through 6, it is God who is behind all of this. It is the same Spirit at work in you that is at work in me. Same Spirit, same Spirit, same God. In fact, if you look closely... I wonder if you noticed this in verses 4 through 6. Look with me. What Paul really says in verses 4 through 6 is that the, this is pretty deep theologically. He's actually saying the Trinitarian God is behind all our gifts. Do you see that? The same Spirit then the same Lord, that's Jesus, and then the same God, that is the word for God the Father. He's addressing division, right? And so what we know and remember is that the Bible teaches that the Trinity means that there is diversity and unity within God. One God, unity, in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There is diversity in those three persons of God, and yet unity. There is one God. You see the point Paul is making. So there should be unity and distinction within the church. There is diversity and unity in the church. And then Paul says the same pride-leveling thing down in verse 11. All these, after he lists a few gifts, all these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. So these gifts, Christians, are from God. And now in verse 7, what are these gifts for? These gifts are for others. They are for the church. Do you have gifts? Do you have abilities? Maybe they're abilities that come and go. Maybe they are abiding abilities. They are not for you. They're not for your success. They are not for your fame. They are not to your credit. They are given to you by the Holy Spirit. For who? For others. For the church. If you're part of a local church, and I hope you are, they're for your local church. Verse 7. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. The Holy Spirit is active in Christians for the good of others. That will be very key, and I will remind you, 
to remember in the next few chapters. The Corinthians have forgotten that, or they didn't know it. That these gifts that they have, they are for the common good. They are for others. Paul said something similar in Romans 1, or he will say it. He writes that later. In Romans 1, 11 and 12, he writes to the Romans, For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift. And what is the purpose of the gift? To strengthen you, he says. I hope I can impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. Gifts are not for you. Gifts are for the strengthening of others. This is one of the things that is wrong with spiritual gift testing. Because we take a test or we take an exam, and I pray you've never taken one. And don't go take one this afternoon. But we take these tests, and then we find out where we're, quote, gifted. And then what do we do? Then we look for areas to serve how we are gifted. And in the meantime, we bypass meeting all these needs that need to be met. Because, well, that's not my gift. I'm more suited to serve over here. And everyone's doing that, and everyone's getting into their formal ministry where they can exercise their gift and get patted on the back. And in the meantime, no informal ministry is taking place. No real love for one another. Here's how you figure out what your gift is. You see a need, and you do your best to meet it. And then if you meet it, and you meet it well, you say, thank you, God. Because 1 Corinthians 15, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And if there's anything good that you do, it's not because of anything good in you. It's because of God working through you. And so the gifts that you have or may have, they are for serving others. So you serve others and pray that God will gift you and enable you and help you and serve you to even serve and do things that you would not otherwise do. And then finally, in verses 8 through 11, Paul lists some of these gifts. This is not an exhaustive list, and I'm not going to go into detail here because Paul doesn't. We will explain more of them later when we get to chapter 14. I think included in here, especially at the end of this list, are the ones that people were gloating over and bragging about. But verse 8, for to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom. That is the only place in the entire Bible that that phrase appears, which makes it very difficult to really understand. But some are gifted with wisdom. And to another, the utterance of knowledge. Also the only place in the Bible that phrase is used. But some are gifted with knowledge. And to others, according to the same Spirit, Faith by the same Spirit. Now, all Christians possess faith. Faith is a gift from God, Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. So every Christian has faith, but this is a greater degree of faith which may be imparted under special circumstances. It may be the kind of faith talked about in Acts 14, 9, which says he listened to Paul speaking, and Paul looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, be a greater degree, a specific degree of faith. Or in Romans 12, 3, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. How do you do that? Each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. So we've all been given faith to believe in Christ, but then there is this measure of faith that may or may not be poured out on us as Christians. Second half of verse 9 now. And there will be more on these gifts later. Right? Because when we read this list, some of you, you're going to start getting excited. Because you want to know what these gifts are. You probably believe you do know what these gifts are. You just want to know what I think these gifts are. <laughs> and probably, so you could send me some scathing email or something, 
But we'll get there. You're going to have to wait. I'm getting back surgery before I preach on that. To another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as He wills. Whatever these were, they were taking place, ordinary and extraordinary ministry of the Holy Spirit in Corinth. It was creating an occasion for division and boasting. Paul reminds them in this opening text who these gifts are from, God, and what these gifts are for, and that is serving and loving one another. They must keep that in mind. So to summarize in these verses which introduced the next three chapters. Paul, he promotes unity. He promotes unity in the beginning of this chapter by teaching the Corinthians where these spiritual gifts are from and what these spiritual gifts are for. So in conclusion, hopefully for our good, I'd like to take these truths that Paul has given us and ask ourselves three questions. As we look to apply this text, here are three questions. Number one, what has the Holy Spirit enabled you to believe and confess? Think about that. What has the Holy Spirit enabled you to believe and confess? And we've learned that if you are a Christian, the Holy Spirit has enabled you to believe and to confess that Jesus is Lord. Not everyone says that. Because not everyone believes that. But Christian, you do. Because the Holy Spirit is at work in you. Romans 10, 9 and 10. This is what the Holy Spirit has enabled you to do. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes, this is faith, with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses what he or she believes and is saved. We are not born loving God. Many of you know that. We are not born loving God. We are not born submitting to God. This takes a work of the Holy Spirit in us, causing us to be born again. The first birth didn't work. That didn't lead to you loving God and submitting to God. You were born with a sinful nature and a sinful heart, a deceitful heart that is beyond cure, so wicked that who can understand it? Jeremiah 17, 9 says, a heart of stone, Ezekiel says, that needs to be replaced with a heart of flesh. No love for God. No desire for God. Love for me. Desire for me. And so something needs to change. I need to. What did Jesus say to Nicodemus? You need to be born again. You need a second birth. This is what the Holy Spirit has done. Given us a new heart with new affections and a new mind, with new understanding. And with this new birth, when you were born again, with this new birth, we cry out joyfully and willingly, Jesus is Lord. A believer has gone from rejecting Jesus, Jesus is accursed, to submitting to Jesus, Jesus is Lord. And this is underrated work of the Holy Spirit. 
of all the attention the Holy Spirit gets in our modern day, with all the work that is attributed to the Holy Spirit in our modern day, I can't help but think that the self-effacing Holy Spirit wishes that we would give Him more credit in regards to what He has done to bring us to Jesus. Jim Packer writes, G.I. Packer, he writes about this ministry of the Spirit pointing us to Jesus. He says, The truth of the matter is this, the distinctive, constant, basic ministry of the Holy Spirit under the new covenant is to mediate Christ's presence to believers. That is, to give them such knowledge of His presence with them as their Savior, Lord, and God that three things keep happening. First, there is personal fellowship with Jesus. That is the to and fro of discipleship with devotion. Secondly, Packer says, personal transformation of character into Jesus' likeness. And thirdly, the Spirit-given certainty of being loved, redeemed, and adopted through Christ into the Father's family blossom in believers' hearts. Give credit where credit is due. Regardless of the gifts you think you have, regardless of the abilities you think you have, you love Jesus today because of the Holy Spirit. He lifted the veil so that you would see yourself for who you truly are and so that you would see merciful God for who He truly is you believe and receive the good news of the gospel. It is the work of the Holy Spirit in you. We should be thankful. We should be grateful. It should motivate our obedience. It should motivate our worship that God has done this in us. Question number two. What has the Holy Spirit enabled you to do? Only you can answer that specifically. I know that if you're a Christian and the Holy Spirit is in you, that He is active and He is gifting you to do things you couldn't otherwise do. He is enabling you to do things you couldn't otherwise do. And you will wind up in service is the word that Paul uses. You will wind up ministering in ways that you wouldn't otherwise you will find yourself in activities or events or circumstances or workings is the other word that Paul uses that you wouldn't otherwise find yourself in. And so as you find yourself by the providence of God in different circumstances, in different situations, and you have opportunity to serve and you have opportunity to minister, whether it's to your kids or to your neighbor or to the person sitting in front or behind you in this church or at work, wherever it is, do you seize those opportunities, take advantage of those opportunities, and minister and serve, knowing and trusting and relying on the Holy Spirit within you? Because you'll talk yourself out of all kinds of things, just like I do. But what has the Holy Spirit enabled me to do? Well, God is organizing your life. And even those things that you see as pains and those things that you see as distractions and those things that you see as interruptions, make no mistake, they're from God. Every single one of them. And you can either, without the help of the Holy Spirit, dismiss them. Or, relying on the Holy Spirit, you can take those opportunities and serve and love and minister. Third question, and why has the Holy Spirit enabled you in this way? For the good of others. For the good of others. Wherever it is and whatever it is, we'll understand more as we read these chapters. But whatever it is and wherever it is that you are, 
the opportunities that are before you, the specific circumstances in your life that are in no one else's life. Why is God enabling you? It is for the good of those around you. It's not for you. It's for others. Every Sunday following every sermon, we respond by taking communion together. We do that in obedience to the Lord Jesus. We do it to remember and proclaim what he accomplished on the cross. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three and following says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. If you're visiting here today, you're invited to remember and proclaim the Lord's death. If you are a baptized believer, if you are a Christian who has turned from their sin and turned to Jesus for salvation, and you have said, because you believe sincerely, Jesus is Lord. And if you are committed to a church, whether it's this or another one, that proclaims the same gospel that you're hearing today, then you're welcome to take communion. We'll have leaders up front to serve you. Come forward and take bread and juice, and then if you would wait patiently back in your seat, and we'll take it together as a family. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for this memorial that you've given us, this token of love that you've left us with so that we could remember the death of your son, so that we could display, so that we could proclaim this gospel, so that we could be loved and served and strengthened by you through this time. We pray, God, that you would use this to build us up and that through our remembering that you would be glorified and honored as we give all praise and glory to you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.